As we uh, come to the end of the last chapter of Revelation, we're going to be uh, looking this morning, beginning in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. And we look at this chapter in a sense of an overview, and we find that the chapter is actually comprised of three introductions. Uh, the first one is, is a, a general introduction to the book, uh, takes up those first three verses. The second one, uh, occupying verses 4 through 8, is sort of John's introduction to the book that uh, he is being asked to write. So it's kind of a personal word. And then the last uh, verses are actually the very introduction of Jesus Christ himself, uh, speaking and addressing the seven churches and all the churches that will be reading and, and receiving this letter in time to come. And there's an interesting thing that you notice as you, as you read these introductions, that they highlight a different aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ uh, in his uh, formal personage, all the things that pertain to him as prophet, as king, and as priest. Um, in, the, in the first segment, the first three verses, God is speaking the word to him to relate. That's the office of prophet, to relate the word of God. And in the second section, uh, he speaks of a kingdom of priests, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is communicating uh, his kingliness. And so he stands as the king of kings and lord of lords. And then in that last section that we're going to be focusing on this morning, um, uh, he is seen in his high priestly office as the one who now ever lives to make intercession for us. He walks among us. He knows our needs. He is intimately acquainted with our ways. He is watching over us and noting where we are succeeding and noting where we are failing. Uh, and he is desiring to see us come to full victory. Uh, every one of the letters we're going to be studying next ends with a statement, To him who overcomes, I will do something. And that overcoming is always the opportunity and privilege that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. When we heed his message, we become overcomers. Uh, Jesus never points out our weaknesses uh, with the idea of, of punishing us or putting us down or exposing us. His desire is to bring correction and restoration so that we can move into that reflective realm of His glory and of His majesty and experience the overcoming victory. And so this introduction really beautifully sets the stage for who Jesus is and what He's going to be saying to us. Now, I want to stop and just read the passage for you before we go on and look at this vision that John has of the exalted Christ. Verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I'm going to pause there and let's look at uh, this first section. 
John's identification with his readers. John says that he is on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, he has been exiled there because of his faithful testimony. He is wanting to identify with the, the members of the congregations of the seven churches to say, I have suffered. I have suffered along with you. I have experienced uh, the things that you're experiencing. Uh, I am your brother. I am your colleague. You know, one of the thoughts that came to me as I was meditating on this passage is what a transformation has occurred in John's life. And this is the beautiful thing that the Holy Spirit does as he sanctifies and sweetens us over time. Uh, do you remember uh, one of our early uh, introductions into the pictures of James and John? Do you remember what they were called? Sons of Thunder. You know, they, they, were, they were young and they were full of uh, vitality and fight and they, they were conquerors and... You remember them going into this one town and they didn't receive Jesus very well. And uh, you, know, you know what their question was? Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? You know, I mean, uh, this was John in his younger years. Man, I'm, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to take them on. Uh, and then you remember toward the end what his mom did? Shows up and says, hey, Jesus, when you, when you get to be king, can my boys sit on your right hand and your left? I want him to have a number one and number two spot in the kingdom. I want him to be right there beside you, ruling everything. Well, John's whole attitude has changed. His whole demeanor is different. He's a different guy because of the, the um, empowerment and transformation of the Holy Spirit, making him over into someone more like Jesus. You know what Jesus did at the Last Supper? He got up and took off the outer garment and girded the towel and he, he washed the disciples' feet. And he says, you need to learn a lesson from me. John learned the lesson. He says, I'm your brother. I'm your colleague. I'm not here to lord it over you. <laughs> I'm here to walk with you. And I've been in your shoes and I know what you're experiencing. And I'm on Patmos because I've suffered alongside you. I have experienced the same things that you've experienced, and they have been costly uh, experiences. He is the one who, in other places, his letters, for example, uh, writes um, to, uh, to those uh, people in the church, probably initially in Ephesus and in Greek, he calls them techniamu, my little children, my little children, I'm writing to you. Uh, he has such tenderness and such affection. And um, it, it's just such a powerful image of what, um, of what Jesus Christ uh, can do uh, in the life of a person. And so he says, I'm a fellow partaker. Now, I want to tell you just a little bit about Patmos. There, there's, there's really some disagreement in, in the assessment in the literature. Patmos was an island about um, four miles wide. Well, about two miles wide and about eight miles long. It was 16 square miles. Not a very big island. There was one small town on it. Um, it was not just exiles that lived there. And by the way, when you say penal colony, you have a tendency to, to pick up an image of 
hardcore criminals. The people that were sent to Patmos weren't hardcore criminals. They were people that aggravated Caesar. <laughs> they, were, they were messing up things, and they figured, well, if we put them on Patmos, they've only got 16 square miles they can possibly mess up, and they can't get to the mainland. So um, that was kind of the idea, was to exile him to Patmos and get him off the mainland and away from the churches where his preaching apparently was causing difficulty and uh, to kind of get him out of the way. And uh, that does not mean that John did not experience a lot of persecution. I mean, he had to go through a lot to get finally exiled. That was one of the things. And in the Roman world, you could be permanently exiled or temporarily exiled. If you were temporarily exiled, um, you could be pardoned and, and get a reprieve. And he was probably exiled in the last year of Domitian's uh, reign and uh, as Caesar, and then probably within a year or two he was allowed to come back because we find him by church tradition at the very end of his life uh, back in Ephesus. On the other hand, John did suffer immensely. Again, tradition, this is extra biblical, but tradition is that they at one point tried to boil him in oil. He was so tough by that point, tradition also says they didn't succeed. Uh, And he survived the encounter, I can't imagine, but uh, he he must have been a tough old bird by then (laughs) in some ways. But um, John had been through it, and he wanted wanted them to know, uh, I I understand what you're going through. I'm going through this with you. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a loud voice behind him, like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, we are automatically tipped off to the fact that as we begin to read Revelation, where it's going to be interwoven with two different voices. One of the voices is what Jesus directly tells him to write essentially as dictation. The other voice is going to be John's own perception of what he is seeing. Write what you see. Not what you hear only, but what you see. And this gives John some license to attempt to find words to describe that which in some cases defies description. And he's going to be looking for analogies. Like, uh, you know, when we talk about God, we talk about things like, He upholds me with His strong right arm. You do realize that God does not have a right arm. He is a spirit. Jesus has a right arm. I'll get to His uh, deity in a moment. But God does not have a right arm. But typically, 90% of human beings are right-dominant, And their right hand is their strong hand. And a warrior's right arm is his sword-wielding, powerful right arm. And so when the Scripture attempts to relate to us the way God protects us and takes care of us and strengthens us, it gives us uh, an image. It's called an anthropomorphism. If you want to write that down or not. Um, It gives us an image that relates human characteristics to God in a way that we can make the connection. Strong right arm is a way of saying, if God had a right arm, that's what He's holding you up with. 
It's kind of like that. Now, John is going to be seeing things that he can't fully explain. That is exactly the way he saw them. He's going to have to use some creative analogies and interpretation in order to relate them to us because he's going to see things that there aren't words for and that he's never seen before. And how do you describe that? How do you describe a rose to a blind person? You know, what do you say about it? And how can you say it succinctly? And John is in that dilemma. You know, we have not seen these visions. He has seen them. And he's going to be trying to relate them to us. So even when we see the vision of Christ that he sees, uh, there's some interpretation there in what he's looking at. I've looked at a number of images. We'll get there in a moment. But I've looked at a number of images that try to picture Jesus with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It, It actually looks kind of evil. I mean, it just doesn't capture it. I've, I've looked at picture after picture of artist rendition, and it just doesn't capture it. It, it just it makes it gives me the creeps because that's I don't think that's exactly what Jesus. I, I mean, what John saw, but he did see something that reminded him of that imagery, and it and it brought it to mind so that he he described it in those terms. So. Uh, We'll get there in a moment, but I want to point that out because as we go through Revelation, we're going to be faced with the same conundrum. And it's going to be tempting to try to give concrete explanation to things which we have not seen yet. And uh, it's it's better to leave those things until a time when God reveals them uh, so that we don't look like idiots, (laughs) because a lot of people have, uh, and allow God to unfold it uh, in his due season. So, he is instructed to write to the seven churches, not only what he hears, but what he sees. And then in verse 12, allow me to read that for you. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, And his head and his hair were white like wool. Uh, It should read, his head, that is his hair, was white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of hell. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The vision of the exalted Christ, the one who walks, among the lampstands. We cannot imagine what John actually saw, but I think the image on the screen is at least a fair symbolic representation 
of seeing the exalted Lord Jesus Christ standing in the midst of the candlesticks which represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. And if we look at this next picture, we can see um, the tabernacle or the tent, and we begin to pick up some of the similarity that is drawn between the Old Testament uh, place where God made his presence known and the image that John saw. And you notice down there in the bottom uh, front corner is the golden lampstand as the high priest would walk into the tabernacle in the holy place. To his left would be a golden lampstand that held seven candles. And those candles uh, stood for a representation of the light that God shone through His people. And, and those lights were to be burning all the time. They were to keep that tended with oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit, so that the oil of God would constantly give light to the lampstand. And that was the only light in the holy place. Now, if you went through the the curtain that we saw so dramatically opened uh, our evening of celebration into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, there was no artificial light in there, but the presence of God was the light that illumined the Holy of Holies in His Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that accompanied them uh, through the wilderness, the, the pillar of the cloud that accompanied them through the wilderness. And as we see this vision that John has of Jesus, we are reminded of the similarity of God's presence among His people in the tabernacle. And it's significant that as we're told, the seven lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia Minor, that those uh, churches are intended in the power of the resource of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the dark world around them. Our mission is to bring light in the darkness. He says, you are the light of the world. Don't put your light under a bushel basket. Don't hide it under a bucket. Let it out so everyone can see it and see by it. You represent the light of the world. And Jesus is walking among the lampstands, examining to see if they're shining the light. And if the light is pure and bright and doing the effective mission that it was intended to bring. And then the next thing that, we, that he notices is that Jesus is wearing this robe that goes down to His feet. And as we kind of look at the image of that, this robe that goes down to the feet of Christ is a robe that reminds us of the priest garments who wore the, a long robe that went all the way to His feet. And this is what immediately brings to mind the high priestly role of Christ in this picture. He is walking among the lampstands as a priest, and a priest makes intercession before God. A priest offers worship. A priest uh, mediates. A priest is there uh, to make the connection between God and man. 
And Jesus is our high priest. There is no other mediator between God and men except the person of Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only mediator. There is no other that can claim that office. And so he stands as the high priest in the midst of the lampstands. And he offers to us that connection uh, as he examines the light which we're shining and examines uh, the, the uh, power of our church by the Spirit as well as its weaknesses. By the way, uh, let me give you a word about the seven churches. Um, did we pass those up somewhere? Can we, can we find that map? There we go. I had mentioned to you uh, oh, early on that there were at least 13 churches that we know of in Asia, and uh, only seven of them are mentioned, and it naturally begs the question, why seven, not all of them, and, and why these seven? And it's kind of interesting that, as it turns out, leave it to the Postal Service to, to figure this out, it turns out in the Roman Postal Service, guess what? Mail would come in from the ocean to the port near Ephesus. And they, the carrier would start in Ephesus, and he would make a circuit. And these were the seven post offices in Asia. Yes, that's true. And he would make a circuit, and he would go to these churches and end back up at Laodicea as his last stop before going back to Ephesus. And mail that was deposited in these cities was then distributed by them to the places all around them. And so... What we have is letter, letters being distributed that are going to these specific churches on the mail route. And uh, they are in turn intended to uh, pass the word and get the information out. So all the churches are actually included. And yet there were peculiar characteristics of each one. And uh, I think that they serve that dual purpose. But that's just kind of a fascinating tidbit on the side. Uh, I don't know what the zip code was, but at, at any rate, um, that's, uh, that's probably some of the reason for the selection of those. We could go back now to the uh, breastplate and golden sash. I'm giving Kate a workout back there this morning. <laughs> Jesus is also seen wearing this golden it's called a golden girdle, but it's really, that's kind of misleading for us. It's really a golden breastplate. It gathers the garment up, but it's worn from the waist to the shoulders. And for the high priest, it included the, the representation of the twelve tribes and the Urim and the Thummim, which were indicated to find the mind and will of God. And in the case of Jesus in this imagery, it's pure gold. And he's wearing a sash of pure gold. There's not a lot of color and jewels and stuff in here. It's all gold. The white robe represents his righteousness and holiness. And the golden breastplate and sash represent his purity. In fact, uh, as we get later on in Revelation, we see that the gold is so pure in the heavenly Jerusalem that it's virtually transparent. It, it has a golden glow to it, but it's transparent. It's so pure. And so this idea of his, of his purity and of his holiness and of his glory 
is seen in these images. And then John says, I looked at his face and his hair, uh, the best translation of the Greek phrase there, and his head, that is his hair, was white like wool. And that uh, white hair, a uh, symbol of, of uh, wisdom and glory, comes from the imagery of Daniel, the Ancient of Days, that Jesus Christ is in fact the Ancient of Days. And then he says, I looked at his eyes and they were like fire. And, and, and they're penetrating. His eyes are all knowing. They're all seeing. There's nothing that he misses. As he gazes upon us, he sees everything. There are times when that may be unsettling to you. But friends, it should give us great comfort. He doesn't miss a thing. Nothing gets by Him. He knows. He knows. Isn't it wonderful to be known by God? Isn't it wonderful not to have to try to find words to explain yourself when words defy explanation? Because God knows. He reads your heart. He reads your mind. He knows what you cannot articulate. He senses what you cannot verbalize. He sees you intimately. And uh, His penetrating eyes can pick out uh, our issues and our blessings and the ways that we have been transformed in His likeness and the ways that we lack. And He is there not to condemn, but to correct and to guide and to support and to encourage. We need to see this image of Christ as the all-knowing One. And then it says His feet are glowing like bronze when it has been burnished in the fire. You know, as I read that, I tried to, uh, to understand because I, back in my college days, I was part of a deliverance ministry that several of our professors were leading and um, along with some missionaries from South America and uh, I would join them in in these uh, prayer times for praying for deliverance for students who were uh, struggling with various and sundry bondages and difficulties. You remember that was the 70s and the 70s um, uh, was a was a tough time in many respects. A lot of things were happening, but drugs were a huge scene. Uh, people had uh, gotten addicted to all kinds of things, then got converted, and many of them felt a call of God, and they showed up uh, to prepare for uh, pastoral or missionary service. But the reality was that uh, some of these uh, difficulties hung on. And I don't know if you're familiar with LSD, but once it gets in, it really doesn't ever get out. It hides out in the um, lipid tissues of the brain and it leaches out occasionally. And people could have horrible flashbacks years after they had uh, taken acid. And so uh, they had all these kinds of things to contend with. And we would, we would uh, meet with them to pray for deliverance. And I remember Dr. McGraw would uh, always, uh, as, as he was interacting with demonic spirits, if I'm freaking some of you out, just relax, I'll be done in a minute. Um, but as he was interacting, uh, he would say to them, 
In the name of Jesus, look above your head and what do you see? Those hot, burnished, fiery feet of Jesus Christ bringing judgment down on you. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's a pretty powerful image. And then I started studying that and it looked like initially that, well, they weren't glowing. They, were, they had been in the fire. You know how metal's tempered? But as I got into it more deeply in preparation for this message, I realized, should have realized anyway, Dr. McGraw was right. The imagery here in, in the uh, description in the original language is that his feet were glowing like burnished bronze that has been in the fire. And you've all seen pictures of uh, melting steel and tempering steel and stuff and how it turns red and then white hot and yellow and it gets all these colors as it heats up and heats up. And, and this imagery is of Jesus Christ trampling his enemies in judgment. The fiery, hot, burnished, glowing feet of wrath that are there to trample his enemies in judgment. Do you know why that encourages me? Because in Ephesians, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, I want you to know, among other things, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us which he demonstrated when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power and name and every name that is named in heaven and on earth. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And our translators, bless their hearts, trying to be helpful, put a period there and started a new chapter when Paul didn't. Paul goes on to say, And you. He raised Him up, and you. Being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he has raised you up and seated you with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Do you know where you are this morning? You're in Jesus Christ. Do you know where the enemies are? Under your feet. Because they're under His feet. He is the victor. And He is the one whose feet glow with the threat of fiery judgment for those who oppose His kingdom. And we are secure in Him above them, with Him. That's the imagery. And it is so important that we see that. And friends, this is the reason why we should expose ourselves to the Word of God frequently. We forget these things. We, we don't hold them in our mind very well. And there's one reason why. Because we have an enemy who does not want us to remember. You remember what the Scripture says? The Word of God is sown and Satan comes in like birds and plucks the seed away so that it won't grow and bear, bear of root and fruit. 
And we need to constantly expose ourselves to the Word of God. You know, the Scripture is the one thing you can read over and 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 over again. And never get too much of it. And never know all that it says. Because it is so pregnant in its meaning. It is so full and deep and rich. You can't plumb the depths. You can't soar the heights. It's beyond comprehension. As God leads us into His truths in layer after layer of understanding. You need to expose yourself to be reminded. Some days you're feeling down. Some days you're feeling spent. Some days you're feeling abused. Some days you feel like you're losing the battle. Some days you wonder if you're going to make it. And the Word of God reminds us of these burnished, hot, fiery, glowing feet of Jesus Christ raining judgment upon our enemies. Not the people Sometimes the people. But the, the, the wicked spirits who come against us through people and through their own attacks and through the fiery darts that go into our mind and our heart and the lies that they tell us and, and the way they beat us down and, and steal and rob our faith and distract us from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. We need to have that fixed firmly in our minds. We need to be exposed to His Word so that we're reminded, (laughs) wow, we are more than conquerors. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. We are triumph in Jesus Christ. John says His voice was like the voice of many waters coming from His mouth. I had a temptation that struck me Friday as I was preparing this, and I elected in the interest of not needing to do CPR, of doing it. I was going to have this mic made really, really hot, and then I was going to have a soundtrack of thunder and lightning as loud as we could get it without blowing the speakers, and I was going to speak over it. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. With the roar of thunder and the crashing of the waves and the glory of His majesty. And I thought, well, somebody's going to have a heart attack. And (laughs) then I'll feel bad. But John says this was just awesome. This was awesome. His voice like the sound of many waters. The Word of God coming from His mouth like a two-edged sword. His face shining like the sun. That light of the universe. Do not be afraid. Haven't I been saying that? I am the first and the last. You know, the deity of Jesus Christ is all over the Scriptures. Back in the second uh, introduction... God, in verse 8, says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. And now Jesus is speaking, and He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. The living one. The living one. Not the come-to-life one. He did not 
start in the incarnation, He always was. He became a man and took on human flesh, but He was always God. We must connect with that. Jesus Christ was no mere example. He was not just another man who mastered temptation and, and showed us the way. Yes, those things are true in all of His humanity. But He is Almighty God. Come in human flesh. He always was. He always will be. I was dead. Behold, I am alive eternally. I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand, the golden lampstands, there are the seven churches or the the seven angels and the Churches, the lampstands are the seven churches. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our man in glory, our God in human flesh, the mystery, and you will not understand this any more than you will understand the Trinity. We can believe it. We can know the Scripture testifies to it. There are not words adequately to explain it. But our Lord Jesus Christ is every bit as much God as if He were not man at all. And He is every bit as much human as if He were not God at all. And since the incarnational reality of His presence, He has been both simultaneously. And as man, he relates to us. And as God, he powerfully intercedes for us. We have this glorious vision of the exalted Christ and his personal and intimate ministry to each of the congregation. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus takes an interest in our congregation. Isn't it interesting to know this morning that He walks among us? That He yearns certain things for us to be. And other things He wants to correct. That we might be more like Him and more effective as lights shining in a dark place. If Jesus were to write us a letter today, what do you think he would say? What would be our strong points? What would he commend us for? What would he say, oh, I, I commend you because you are this or that or the other? Can you imagine? And what would he say to us about our problems? Nevertheless, I have this problem with you. And I want to fix it, if you'll let me. (laughs) 
Like he said to the church at Laodicea, this is not an evangelism verse, by the way. He says, I'm standing at your door knocking. I can't even get in your church, Laodicea. I'm knocking. I'm waiting for somebody there to open the door and let me in. I want to come in and fellowship with you. I want to sit at this table with you. I want to be present. I love you. You've shut me out. I want back in. I think he's here among us. We haven't shut him out. We have commendable things as a congregation. And we have problems. What do you think they are on either side of the fence? What would Jesus say to us today if he wrote us a letter? We're going to be looking at those seven churches. And as we do, I want to give you a challenge to prayerfully open your eyes and ears, the ears of your spirit, the eyes of your spirit, and say, Lord, show me where we identify both good and bad. And let me be the one to get up and open the door for you in those areas where we might be resisting you. Let me be the one to let you in. Revival often begins with just one person who says yes to God in every way. It doesn't take 20 or 30 or 50 or all of us. It just takes one. Isn't that good news? You don't have to wait till everybody's on board. But you might have to be the one to say, Lord, I, I want to let you in this area once you know it. Will you pray that way with me as we study together? Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Open our hearts to receive it. Minister to us in the power of your Holy Spirit that our lights may shine brightly by his oil. In Jesus' name, amen.